come to order, combating authoritarianism, U.S. tools and responses. When I returned to chair this committee, uh, I believed it was critical that our first hearing explore the state of democracy around the world amid a resurgence of authoritarianism. To remind ourselves that the U.S. support of human rights, good governance, and individual rights are not simply lofty policy goals in and of themselves. One year later, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine is showing the world exactly what is at stake. At this moment, a democracy forged from the hard-fought tenacity of the Ukrainian people is fighting for its very existence, while a ruthless dictator is shelling civilians, blowing up schools and hospitals, and threatening regional stability. To authoritarians like Putin, liberal democracy is not just a nice concept, it is a formidable, dangerous ideology that threatens their power and wealth. And they will deploy whatever means necessary to protect that power from propaganda, corruption, and tragically, ruthless violence. In response to this threat, however, we are witnessing a democratic reawakening. Democracies across the globe have rallied to deliver a swift, unified response to Putin and his enablers, and have offered support to Ukrainians fighting for their freedom. We must capitalize on this resurgence of democratic fervor to successfully combat the growing threat of authoritarianism, and the United States must lead the way. Over the past two decades, a new type of 21st century authoritarian support system has arisen. Rather than working in despotic isolation, authoritarian leaders operate through networks of new kleptocratic financial mechanisms, disinformation professionals, and an array of security services to protect one another from democratic pressures and to secure their repressive rule. Autocrats from Venezuela to Cuba, Belarus, and Burma are sustained through support from China and Russia. Today, I look forward to hearing about the administration's efforts to counter authoritarianism and bolster democracies. I believe that if we are to be successful in this fight, we must redouble our efforts. Specifically, we must aggressively lead with our values in actions and not just in words. We must support and protect human rights defenders, democracy activists, and civil society organizations who are on the front lines of this global struggle. In the coming weeks, I'll be introducing the Global Voices of Freedom Act, which will strengthen protections for democracy and human rights defenders across the world. We must combat the complex web of kleptocracy sustaining autocrats from around the world. We must cut off their lifeblood and impair their ability to buffer one another from sanctions. We must combat digital authoritarianism, including disinformation, propaganda, and censorship used to subvert democratic principles and advance autocrats' interests. We must counter the dangerous narratives which authoritarians spread to manipulate, to distract, and to cause people to question whether democracy has anything to offer the modern world. We must also bolster fledgling democracies from Niger to Tunisia, including through economic support, and counter the rise of illiberal forces from El Salvador to Turkey. For too long, authoritarianism has lured national leaders with the promise of easy pathways to wealth and power. In response, we must strengthen our solidarity with nations striving to pursue security and prosperity for their people through just and democratic means. And our efforts must be well-funded. And I'm glad that we have the distinguished chairman of the 
Appropriations uh, uh, State Authorization and um, Subcommittee on uh, Foreign Ops. Our efforts have to be well-funded. How many more titles do you have? On the, 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 did I add extra to it? Or? I, I, I greatly appreciate the um, description of myself as distinguished, but when oh, I deliver oh, well. up to the goals of our committee, you'll be even very distinguished when it's well-funded. So uh, <laughs> what the United States has invested in democracy assistance pales in comparison to the billions that autocrats pour into protecting one another's wealth and power. The administration's summit for democracy last year represented a significant opportunity to galvanize our allies in these efforts. But if the goals of the summit are not translated into concrete and well-funded actions, the democracy movement will be worse off, left only with empty promises. And we must also get our own house in order, as demonstrated when rioters stormed the Capitol on January 6th to overturn the results of the presidential election. We must fill critical roles at home, including the Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, the Ambassador for War Crimes, and ambassadorships around the world. My colleagues' obstruction of these nominees impedes our ability to stand up to autocrats and support our allies. And at the same time, the administration must nominate an undersecretary for public diplomacy. In recent weeks, we have witnessed what authoritarians are willing to do to protect their power and wealth and to eliminate democracy. Today, it is Russia and Ukraine. Tomorrow, it will be other nations. We have watched as Ukrainians have taken up arms and risked their lives in defense of freedom and democracy. What are we in turn as democracies and the United States willing to do? That is a question I hope we begin to answer today. And with that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, every American can turn on the TV and see the authoritarianism is on the rise. From Putin's personal war, very personal war against Ukraine to China's genocide of the Uyghurs and technology-fueled repression, autocrats are busy quashing political dissent and actively working to undermine our open democratic society. While Russia and China are the most egregious models of authoritarianism, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, and Zimbabwe also demonstrate the global nature of this rise. Clearly, the United States and our allies need to step up our game against these regimes. The Biden administration has made supporting democracy a focal point of its foreign policy. And last December, the president hosted the Summit for Democracy with much fanfare. Unfortunately, there were few, if any, results therefrom. Ukraine was a participant in this summit and is now fighting for its sovereignty against an authoritarian Russian regime. Ukrainian lives will be, not be saved by the declarations or pledges from a summit. Instead, the Ukrainians need air defense systems, including surface-to-air missiles, fighter planes, anti-tank missiles, ammunition, small arms, and bulletproof vests. The United States once called itself the arsenal of democracy. We can become so again. Ukraine is fighting for its freedom, but also for ours. We must continue to give it the tools now to combat Putin's authoritarianism. Russia's repre repression goes beyond its current war and uses disinformation and cyber warfare to stir discontent abroad, including in Georgia, Moldova, the Baltics, and the Balkans. We have also allowed the ill-gotten financial gains of Putin's cronies to find a home in the West, including in the United States. I'm glad to see the administration has stood up a task force to remove the, uh, the Kremlin's influences from our systems 
and their uh, holdings, but it is long overdue. We've been far too permissive for too long, and the results of that complacency are seen in Ukraine. Uh, turning to China, the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party has a long history of malign influence that takes a variety of forms. Its coordination with Russia on misinformation about the war in Ukraine is only the latest example. The CCP is justifying Russia's horrific and unjustified invasion by spreading disinformation about U.S.-supported biological research labs in, the, in Ukraine. This is similar to the false narratives China used to cover up the origins of COVID-19 and delay the global pandemic response. In other instances, the CCP is using transnational repression to target dissidents and even U.S. citizens outside of China, bully media outlets overseas that publish negative coverage of China and silence debate at U.S. universities. Funding from China into universities is another major problem. From 2019 to 2021 alone, U.S. universities received $545 million in gifts and contracts from China. $545 million. In one example, Chinese uh, company Alibaba contracted with a U.S. university to develop facial surveillance technology. In Europe, multiple universities have ties with Chinese universities that directly support the People's Liberation Army. These partnerships support bad actors that do not share the interests of democratic nations. It's a simple question. Why are we funding Chinese authoritarianism? As autocrats get more creative in pushing their agenda, the United States and its allies need to increase their efforts to block and tackle disinformation and authoritarian narratives before they take root. The U.S. should continue its support for democracies around the globe through our foreign assistance programs. We need to better coordinate within our interagency to focus on programs that are most effective at pushing back against the lies and propaganda of our adversaries. We should also work with our allies and partners to promote democratic institutions, good governance, and understanding of the playbooks of authoritarian governments. On universities, for example, the U.S. and our partners should improve scrutiny of foreign donations and contracts. We must continue to counter authoritarian tactics through free media and civil society. I look uh, forward to hearing more today about our current U.S. government efforts to combat authoritarianism and how we can improve upon those efforts immediately. We must not let the authoritarians win. As we see in Ukraine today, no one wants to live in a world controlled by Putin or Xi. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. All right, so we'll start with our witnesses. Let me introduce them. It's my privilege to welcome Under Secretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights, Uzra Zaya. In her role, Under Secretary Zaya leads department efforts to prevent and counter threats to civilian security, works to advance the security of the American people by assisting countries around the world to build more democratic, secure, stable, and just societies. Undersecretary Zaya also serves concurrently as the U.S. Special Coordinator for Tibetan Issues, and she is a veteran diplomat, having served our country in the Foreign Service over 27 years in Syria, Egypt, Oman, Jamaica, and France, and we welcome you. We're also joined virtually by another formidable diplomat on acting Under Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, Ms. Jennifer Hall Godfrey. In her role, Ms. Godfrey leads department efforts to expand and strengthen the relationships between the people of the United States and our foreign counterparts. She works to advance our national interests by seeking to engage, inform, and understand the perspectives of foreign audiences. Ms. Godfrey is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service 
and has served our country with distinction in Jordan, Turkmenistan, Libya, Austria, and Saudi Arabia. So welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. Uh, your full statements will be included in the record. I'd ask you to try to summarize them in about five minutes or so so we can have a conversation with you. And uh, Madam Secretary, we start with you. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today. With Russia's premeditated, unprovoked, and unjustified war of choice against Ukraine generating Europe's worst humanitarian crisis since World War II, never in my lifetime has the contest between democracy and autocracy been more important. And we will prevail thanks to the strong bipartisan support of Congress. Across the globe, authoritarianism threatens democratic governments and societies. According to Freedom House, almost 40% of the global population live in countries categorized as not free. This is a defining challenge of our time, and this administration is responding with decisive and collective action. Today, I'd like to highlight three core lines of effort. One, shoring up our alliances and partnerships to advance a common vision and unified front in the face of authoritarianism. Two, broadening the chorus of those active in defending democracy, countering corruption, and advancing human rights globally beyond our traditional transatlantic partners. And three, modernizing our foreign policy and assistance toolkit to push back on authoritarians while supporting civil society actors and institutions often under siege. There's no greater proof of the need for bold action to combat authoritarianism than Putin's brutal effort to occupy Ukraine and destroy its democracy. But Putin grossly underestimated the will of the Ukrainian people and the international community. The United States and the rest of the responsible world are uniting to stand with Ukraine and surge assistance across all sectors. Together with allies, we're exposing the Kremlin's disinformation and lies while imposing massive costs through powerful sanctions and export controls that have cratered Russia's economy and left it more politically isolated than ever before. We will use every tool available to hold the government of Russia its enablers in Belarus, and the Russian oligarchs who have profited from this corrupt, violent regime to account. We're also clear-eyed and resolute about other threats to democracy. A more assertive People's Republic of China is attempting to re redefine global norms to privilege authoritarianism and avert international scrutiny. The PRC has good reason to fear the latter as it continues to commit genocide and crimes against humanity in Xinjiang strangle democracy and press freedom in Hong Kong, and suppress Tibetan Buddhists and other religious minorities from practicing their faith. PRC authorities externalize their system further through acts of transnational repression, including on our own shores. To counter these efforts, the United States is forging a common approach with like-minded partners, enhancing their resilience to coercion, promoting accountability for the PRC's abuses, and pushing back against the use of forced labor and misuse of advanced and emerging technologies for repression. Congress has provided us with important tools to promote accountability for the PRC's human rights abuses, 
including the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act and the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Over the course of this hearing, I hope to discuss other grave examples of authoritarian leaders challenging international norms, suppressing the rights of their citizens, and supporting one another, from Iran, Belarus, Syria, the DPRK, and Burma, to Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua. But hope is not lost. One more way we're countering authoritarians worldwide is through the President's Summit for Democracy. Last December, more than half of UN member states came together to make commitments to strengthen our own democracies and reject authoritarianism. We're already seeing these governments translate words into action, demonstrated by the 93 out of 100 summit participants who supported the historic March 2nd UN General Assembly resolution to condemn Russia's Ukraine invasion. Through the summit, we've rolled out a suite of new tools to combat authoritarianism and bolster democracy, including efforts to stem authoritarians' misuse of technology, accelerate solutions to combat corruption worldwide, expand access to local independent media and reduce the impact of disinformation, and bolster democratic reformers and support more inclusive, resilient, and equitable societies. In short, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member, we are responding with allies and partners to the immediacy of Russia's autocratic attack on democracy, as well as the PRC's long-term challenge to democratic norms, while reinvesting with our partners in more resilient democracies that deliver security, prosperity, and freedom. In the words of our president, in the battle between democracy and autocracy, democracies are rising to the moment and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Thank you. Secretary Godfrey. partners to the immediacy of Russia's autocratic attack on democracy, as well as the PRC's long-term challenge to democratic norms, while reinvesting with our partners in more resilient democracies that deliver security, prosperity, and freedom. In the words of our president, in the battle between democracy and autocracy, democracies are rising to the moment, and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Thank you. Secretary Godfrey. Good morning. Can you hear me? We, we, I think we hear you. There you are, and we, okay. hear you. we hope you're feeling well. Thank you, sir. Yes, I'm glad you can hear me. Please let me know if you, if you have an issue here. To you. the immediacy of Russia's Thank autocratic attack on democracy, as well as the PRC's long-term challenge to democratic norms, how we while reinvesting with our partners in more resilient democracies that deliver security, prosperity, and freedom. Poses a clear in the words of our president, in the battle the between States, democracy and autocracy, and democracies society. are rising to the moment. And the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. Prescient words. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, Secretary Godfrey. Good morning. Can you hear me? I think we hear you. There you are, and we hope you're feeling well. Thank you, sir. Yes, I'm glad you can hear me. 
please let me know if you, if you have an issue here. To the immediacy of Russia's Thank autocratic attack on democracy, as well as the PRC's long-term challenge to that delivers security, prosperity, <laughs> and freedom. In the words of our president, in the battle the between States, democracy and autocracy, okay. democracies so are someone's going to help me out here and figure out what, what's happening. I don't know if this is the televised portion of our hearing that is creating feedback, or we can move forward. I think we, we, I think we hear you. There you are, and we, hear you. we hope you're feeling well. Thank you, sir. Yes, I'm glad you can hear me. Please let me know if you, if you have an issue. Okay, let's try, Ms. Godfrey, uh, to see if we can get you in now. That delivers security, prosperity, <laughs> and freedom. Poses a clear in the words of our president, in the, in the battle States, between democracy and autocracy, and okay. democracies so are Someone's going to help me out here. I think we hear you. There you are. And we okay. hear you. We hope you're feeling well. I understand we're trying to work through the technical issues. There's some type of delay in the feed, but not sure exactly. Okay, let's try, Ms. Godfrey, uh, to see if we can get you in now. Understood, sir. That delivers security, prosperity, <laughs> and freedom. Poses a clear in the words of our president, in the battle States, between democracy and autocracy, and okay. democracies so are Someone's right. going to help me out here. I think we hear you. There you are. And we, okay. hear you. we hope you're feeling well. I understand we're trying to work through the technical issues or some type of delay in the feed, but not sure exactly. Okay, let's try, Ms. Godfrey, now to see if we can get you in. Understood, sir. That delivers security, prosperity, <laughs> and freedom. Poses a clear in the words of our president, in the United battle States, between democracy and autocracy, and okay. democracies so are Someone's right. going to help me. Well, it seems that silence is golden, so we'll try it again. Ms. Godfrey, <clears throat> why don't we try to turn to you now? Thank you, sir. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee for inviting me to speak with you today about how we confront the challenges posed by authoritarian regimes, a very timely conversation. May I ask if you can hear me all right now? Yes, we can. If, if you can speak up a little louder or bring your microphone a little closer, that'd be great. Yes, sir. Authoritarianism poses a clear threat to the global interests of the United States, democracies, and open societies. 
A key weapon in the arsenal of oppressive governments is their willingness to lie to public audiences, limit freedom of expression and independent media in their own nations, and exploit freedom of expression and independent media in open societies. These dynamics are not new, but modern communications greatly ex exacerbate the impact of their deceptive public engagement. Competition for the attention of foreign audiences is intense, and earning attention, trust, and favorable opinion requires intentional, principled, and consistent engagement. To this end, the Department of State maintains a full-spectrum approach to both counter the influence of authoritarian regimes, and equally as important, to demonstrate in word and in deed the value of democratic governance. The department's 4,000 public diplomacy All right, it, I guess we have lost Ms. Godfrey, and so um, we'll go to questions, uh, just, and then we'll see if we can reconvene her at some point. Uh, we'll start a series of five-minute rounds. Uh, Secretary Zaya, last Congress I uh, released a report about new digital authoritarianism for both of our witnesses. Well, I'm not sure that we can get Ms. Godfrey on, but as autocrats deploy new digital tools to spread disinformation, unlawfully surveil civil society and repress dissenting voices, how is the administration building a consistent and strategic approach for combating digital authoritarianism and ensuring that new technologies work for democracy? And how is the State Department engaged and mobilized the private sector in this work? Thank you, Senator, for, for raising a, a critically important question and for the report that you referenced. Certainly, as, as both you and the ranking member have mentioned, uh, digital authoritarianism represents you know, one of the most uh, concerning aspects of 21st century authoritarianism, and it is a core element of the administration's approach to countering authoritarianism and, and strengthening democracies throughout the world. I would describe this as a offense and defense effort, where the offense piece is, is focused on our international efforts uh, to, count, to combat and counter disinformation, which I think have um, seen some remarkable success uh, in recent weeks, thwarting at every turn egregious Russian, Chinese, and other uh, nations' effort to distort what is actually happening on the ground in Ukraine and, and really uh, shift narratives and essentially uh, neutralize longstanding Russian disinformation efforts. But we are also countered on the resilience piece in terms of strengthening democracies and including emerging democracies' ability to counter and resist disinformation. This was one of the core lines of effort in the Summit for Democracy under a line of effort we call Technology for Democracy, where we will be working with allies and partners to strengthen digital literacy, to open uh, resource streams for free and independent media, which is a critical aspect of countering 
um, the distortions of authoritarians' disinformation with truth and accountability towards authoritarian So I think in the case of uh, the most recent case, the administration deserves a lot of credit for declassifying uh, intelligence and getting ahead of the curve and uh, basically creating uh, a, a, a clear narrative as to what Russia is up to. And I think that has worked well. But in the broader context, outside of the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, I'm not sure that we're doing so well on the question of digital authoritarianism as it relates to meeting that challenge globally. Um, and I think that countries like China, Russia, and others uh, are ahead of the curve on this. So we'd very much like to hear from the department uh, how we achieve success more globally. I understand what's happening in Ukraine has been a success, but more globally, I'd like to I'd like to follow up with you in that regard. 2021 was the deadliest year on record for human rights defenders, which uh, with at least 358 killed, thousands attacked, and thousands more unjustly imprisoned. The U.S. government has a long bipartisan history of supporting human rights defenders, but our efforts remain largely ad hoc. Uh, Under Secretary Zaya, how is the administration working to create a cohesive and coordinated strategy to provide support to human rights defenders? Thank you. I think you've raised a a critically important senator, and this is the uh, reality of human rights defenders increasingly under siege and um, paying with their lives for their vitally important work. Um, This also is a core aspect of the Presidential Initiative for Democracy emerging from the Summit for Democracy, where we are working um, to build up stronger um, allied and partner efforts to support democratic reformers worldwide. And here I have to absolutely credit congressional support for the resourcing of direct emergency financial assistance to human rights defenders, which has been led by our State Department Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. I just wanna point out that since 2007, these global programs have supported over 4,000 human rights defenders and organizations in over 105 countries and allowed them to continue to do their work under very difficult circumstances. And finally, um, access to accurate, factual, and timely information is, in my view, a fundamental human right. Yet authoritarian and repressive governments all over the world now possess the tools and technology needed to limit citizens' access to information. Senator Blackburn and I have recently unveiled our Internet Freedom and Operations Act, which authorizes over $125 million in funding for various internet freedom programs, as well as the internet censorship circumvention technologies. What are some of the most frequent methods that these regimes use to control access to information and independent media outlets? And what initiatives and tools does the State Department have to circumvent this sort of government censorship of independent media? Um, sir, I'd like to give my colleague, um, Senior Bureau, uh, Acting Undersecretary Hall Grafrey, the, the chance to weigh in here, but I will elaborate on some I of the un- I understand that she is now on the phone and can give her testimony through the phone. So uh, why don't, you, you want to have her answer that question? I'd like to give her the chance to weigh in, but I, I would just point out that some of the, the key methods that we're seeing authoritarians use include... Um, 
through misinformation and disinformation, the use of, of bots and other state-sponsored efforts, as, as you and the ranking member uh, mentioned, to basically inj inject lies into public discourse, whether it's accusing the United States falsely of having ChemBio facilities in Ukraine or... Um, yeah, I know what they do. What I want to know exactly. is what we're doing oh, uh, in, in the counter effort. Yeah, yeah. I, I would put that in in the context of our efforts to support the expansion and, and resources of free and independent media and its own ability to defend itself under um, successive efforts to uh, defame and even through legal action uh, cut off their efforts. But I'd like to give Acting yeah. Undersecretary Hall Godfrey. All right, uh, because of the nature in. of what's happening here. Uh, Secretary Godfrey, did you hear that question? Yes, sir, I did. All right. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Can you, okay. can you respond to it? Yes, sir. Um, I would start off by saying that the key tactics that authoritarian regimes use um, to limit access to information are the same tactics they've been using for a long time now, which is censorship. Um, and limiting freedom of expression and, and independent media in their own nations. Those challenges are certainly exacerbated by modern communications technologies, but fundamentally we're still talking about governments who lie uh, and work to keep other people from telling the truth. Um, they do so by kicking out uh, independent media, as we've seen Russia uh, Russia do with international media. They do so by telling their own journalists and citizens what they may and may not say. Just last week, the government of Russia made clear that uh, that speakers in Russia can't refer to the invasion of Ukraine as, a, as an invasion or as a war. Um, and then they certainly continue the pursuit of their own lies, um, such as Russia blaming uh, the United States or NATO or Western nations for their own invasion of, of Ukraine. Those tactics aren't new. Um, what is, of course, different today is the scale and reach of digital communications. And we see autocrac autocracies both exploiting those digital um, communications, but also seeking to control them um, in their own countries. Right now, Russians and Ukrainians can still access the internet, independent media. They can speak freely, um, and that is uh, a good thing. I am very concerned. The State Department and the U.S. government is very concerned about actions the Russian governments and other autocracies will take to limit um, freedom of speech and freedom of, me uh, of media through controlling the physical means of internet and data connectivity. But right now we still see Russians and Ukrainians in particular with access to independent voices. All right, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, turn to Senator Risch. My, my goal is to hear not what our adversaries are doing, I understand what they're doing. My goal is to understand what we are doing uh, in response to that, but I'll come back to you uh, at the end of other members' questions. Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Probably the most effective pushback I've seen in a long time was uh, on TV last night. Anybody that turned on the news saw the uh, employee of the Russian TV station jump up with a sign and, uh, and uh, tell the Russian people that uh, uh, what they were hearing was a lie and that, uh, uh, they're, uh, th that the whole thing was... Uh, misrepresented uh, to the Russian people. She was escorted off, and I, her attorney this morning said she couldn't find her, so I 
suspect she's probably headed for Siberia or something like that. But I tell you, there were millions and millions of people in Russia that, uh, that saw that. And uh, I suspect it's a lot of discussion this morning around the country. Um, I, I want to talk about, I'd like to hear uh, what work uh, you are doing uh, regarding the, uh, the countries that will be uh, next. I think most of us believe that uh, if Putin gets away with this, Moldova will certainly be next and be quite easy. Uh, after that, uh, of course, uh, will come uh, Georgia, which probably be a little bit tougher. Then after that, uh, he has long lusted after the Baltic states. And uh, after that, Poland and the Czech Republic. And then he's on his way to putting the USSR back together again. So, so what, what is being done uh, to fend off the uh, Russian aggression uh, in, in these particular embattled countries? And I'd like to hear some specifics, uh, if I can. Thank you, Ranking Member. I, I think you raised a, a critically important question to which we're very well attuned that certainly uh, Russia's uh, uh, the threat that Russia represents is, is not solely uh, with respect to Ukraine, and we are absolutely shoring up our support and, and collaboration with allies and partners, including um, all the frontline states that you mentioned. I would note that um, the Baltic states, uh, Moldova and Georgia, were all part of our Summit for Democracy effort. Um, all of these countries are also part of the substantial U.S. humanitarian assistance that, that Congress uh, has enabled so rapidly as we contend with what I described earlier as, as the worst humanitarian uh, crisis uh, in Europe since World War II. I think um, in critical, in concrete terms, uh, a case such as Lithuania, um, you know, we've seen Lithuania um, basically embattled from all sides from taking a principled stand with respect to uh, opening a liaison office with Taiwan, and also certainly taking a very resolute stand against uh, Putin's aggression. Uh, we have offered substantial support to Lithuania to stand up to Chinese uh, economic coercion in the form of uh, export, import bank support, other uh, supply chain um, enabled uh, assistance. And Moldova would be another case where we are offering um, considerable democracy assistance support. I'd be happy to provide you later with some specific numbers where we have the positive development of the elections last year in a, in a reformist government that I think is uh, very well aligned with the goals of the summit, countering authoritarianism, elevating the fight against corruption, and def uh, advancing human rights internally and internationally. Yeah, I'm sure glad to hear that uh, uh, the efforts you're making with Lithuania, uh, they, they really have been brave standing up to uh, China and Russia. And, of course, they're right on the front line of Russia. Nobody knows the Russians better than they do. And I think we all need to help them uh, move forward if we can. Moldova is going to be a heavy lift. Uh, they're a very small country, and it's going to be very difficult uh, for them to defend uh, if and when Putin decides uh, to... Uh, to go there, I've just got a short uh, period of time left. Uh, I and other my colleague and other of my colleagues, including uh, the chairman, have been uh, very concerned with the uh, activities of China uh, in the, on the colleges and universities. And you heard the number I talked about of half a billion dollars uh, going in. The, these these monies aren't put there out of the generosity of their heart by any stretch. What what, what do you have any initiatives pu pushing back on that on college campuses? 
Uh, ranking member, I'm going to ask uh, Acting Undersecretary Hall Godfrey to respond to your uh, given her responsibilities on the U.S. education side. Thank you very much uh, for the question about Chinese uh, influence in American colleges, uh, colleges and universities, PRC influence, I should say. Um, in 2020, sir, um, I, I think as you know, with congressional support, the Department of State began an earnest effort um, to ensure that American colleges and universities had a good understanding and visibility into the activities uh, of the PRC on their campus and that their hosting um, of uh, Chinese nationals um, uh, in, uh, in American universities was consistent with um, exchange program directives and policies. Um, the Bureau of Education and Cultural Affairs began um, a considerable effort uh, to ensure that updated guidance made it to colleges and universities uh, who are sponsoring Confucius Institutes, uh, the institutes that um, the, the Chinese educational, higher educational system um, uses uh, to, to support Chinese scholars around the world. Uh, in 2020, when that uh, initiative began, 55 American universities were hosting Confucius Institutes. Um, over the course of the past two years, as American universities have sought to uh, better understand the impact and activities of um, staff of Confucius Institutes on their campuses, today only nine American colleges and universities continue to support Confucius Institutes. Um, I, I should say, you know, we, we do continue to wholeheartedly welcome um, legitimate exchange and scholarship, including by citizens uh, of China. But we do very much want to make sure that um, the PRC, the Chinese government, is not exploiting our open educational uh, system to more malevolent ends. Yeah, I, I appreciate that on the Confucius Institutes. There's the, those numbers coming down are... Uh, uh, are a good sign that there is some recognition going on. I'm still very concerned about the flow of money uh, with either grants or contracts with universities. My time's up. Thank you, Ms. Chairman. Thank you. And if I can add, sir, I, I do think the new requirements in place for American universities to make sure that they are um, declaring publicly what their foreign sources of funding for have had an impact as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, let me just announce that because we had to take our WebEx system down, several members had booked in via WebEx. And if they come physically to the hearing, I will recognize them in that order. But right now, it's Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Risch, for this uh, timely and important uh, hearing. And undersecretaries, I great to uh, be with you again. Um, later today, uh, President Biden will sign into law the omnibus, um, as was referenced in the introduction, uh, I have the unique challenge of uh, leading along with my ranking member, Senator Graham, uh, the State and Foreign Operations Appropriations Subcommittee. Um, and we got the lowest allocation of any appropriations subcommittee. Uh, we were the victim of a last minute uh, bait and switch where nearly $2 billion got stripped from my subcommittee. Um, and yet we are in the moment when pushing back on authoritarianism, um, strengthening the tools of democracy and responding um, to a whole series of global crises is exactly what we should prioritize investing in. So uh, let me try and look forward and be positive if I can. Um, there were some pieces of the uh, omnibus that I think matter directly to this conversation. Uh, one of them, the nearly $300 million counting, countering Russian information fund, um, $860 million for the U.S. Agency for Global Media, 
um, the dialogue you were just having with the chairman and the ranking member about uh, Russian disinformation and its influence in Eastern Europe and our ability to effectively push back on that in the middle of this brutal and tragic war in Ukraine. Um, there are resources now uh, moving forward. In total, about $2.6 billion is being dedicated to democracy programs and about $300 million to the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, following uh, the um, virtual democracy summit, um, I worked with Senator Graham to introduce the Democracy in the 21st Century Act, which would increase global democracy assistance to $3 billion, modernize the tools that we have available uh, to defend democracy with an emphasis on emerging technologies, combating kleptocracy, um, and election integrity, and establish funds with flexible resources for confronting emerging challenges uh, to democracy across the State Department, USAID, and the National Endowment for Democracy. Have you had a chance to review this bill? Um, do you think this committee taking up and passing and then Congress passing this bill before the next democracy summit would be useful? And do you have any specific feedback for me on how we could make this an effective moment for both implementing this legislation and then fully funding our work to defend democracy in the world? Well, thank you so much, Senator, for, for your uh, commitment to resourcing our efforts to counter authoritarianism and particularly um, for putting forward this bill. Um, I'm well aware of it, and I want to uh, share with you that we share many of the bill's sentiments, and I think the prioritizations that you've put forward in the bill are, are well in line with uh, President Biden's initiative for democratic renewal which prioritized um, five lines of effort, including um, supporting free and independent media, elevating the fight against corruption, um, supporting election integrity against malign foreign influence, supporting dem democratic reformers, as well as what we call technology for democracy solutions. So um, we look forward to working with you um, to ensure the, the bill can provide flexibility for the secretary and de-conflict any potential overlap in programs, and we really look forward um, to consulting with you and your team on specific provisions, and thank you for your commitment in putting it forward. Given the experience uh, of the last month where, uh, frankly, I think President Biden uh, and his national security team did a masterful job of pushing Putin off his game by proactively releasing um, the products of intelligence um, so that it was clear to our European partners and allies that we were well aware of Putin's next move, and then he did things that um, confirmed tragically our predictions. Um, and given the flood of Russian disinformation, obviously both within Russia and into the region, how would you reshape some of these priorities in the context of the developments of the last few weeks? Well, Senator, I think um, the developments of the of the last three weeks in particular um, only underscore the need for us to invest more in our efforts to combat disinformation and, and support free and independent media. And this is why the president's uh, FY22 request to Congress uh, for media freedom represented a 40% increase from the previous fiscal, uh, from FY2020. This will help us bolster the capacity of legitimate media outlets to provide trusted news, to operate as sustainable businesses, and leverage digital platforms to enhance audience. It will also support media literacy, you know, teaching audiences around the world to better discern the real from the fake, 
and strengthen the legal and regulatory environment for press freedom so that sector can fulfill its watchdog function and counter so much of the noxious and destabilizing disinformation that well, we've seen issued from Russia, the PRC. Thank you, Madam Undersecretary. Um, Senators uh, Shaheen and Durbin and I were literally in Lithuania as the war began. The day before, we were in Poland. In both cases, we had the chance to visit, in Poland in particular, with um, a cable channel that's under a lot of pressure in terms of maintaining a free and open media. I, I You requested a 40% increase. That is not what we were able to deliver here. And I frankly think um, we need the bipartisan focus of this committee on making sure that we're actually delivering the resources um, to defend democracy at this critical moment. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Merkley. Let me check and see if this is working. Thank you so much for being with us today. And I want to turn to this uh, issue of transnational repression, autocratic repression. And I'm, I'm thinking very much about the huge number of tactics that were seen. Assassinations, assaults, detentions, renditions, disappearances, surveillance, online surveillance, online stalking, and threats to family members back home and about the variety of real-life examples that, that keep uh, coming up, uh, some of them happening abroad, some of them happening here in the United States. Uh, for example, a Chechen exile who was assassinated in Vienna, who was a, very much a critic of Ramzan Kadyrov, or however it's pronounced, uh, or uh, a Uyghur activist uh, who um, uh, neighbors observed men uh, uh, photographing his home, rummaging through his mail. Uh, then an individual approached him, speaking to him in Mandarin at a protest at the Chinese embassy, and said, if you get poisoned, do you know how to treat yourself? You know the Chinese government is very powerful. You could die in a car accident, or you could get poisoned. Uh, intimidation of all forms. And this is just expanding with the uh, 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 kind of modern technology allows countries to keep track of dissidents uh, abroad uh, and to coordinate activities against them. How are we acting and responding to protect in free countries individuals from the assault from autocratic regimes? Thank you so much, Senator, for, for raising um, this uh, escalating concern, transnational re repression, which we are elevating in the president's overall approach in countering authoritarianism. Um, just uh, last week, I had the privilege to host with my counterpart from DHS a, a closed roundtable with um, individuals impacted by transnational repression from all over the world, and they described the, the very um, absolutely disturbing practices that you just elaborated. So we are on the case, and we're working uh, with our allies and partners to build international opposition to transnational repression, to deter and promote accountability for those who are perpetrating it. Uh, and we are offering you know, increased support 
to protect human rights activists, journalists, political dissidents, defectors, and others, and encouraging like-minded governments to do the same. This is also um, part of our engagement with the private sector to try to identify and implement specific measures that will protect vulnerable individuals and communities, particularly online, and also support reforms that strengthen safeguards against the misuse of Interpol systems in particular, which we've seen one tactic of the transnational repressors playbook. Uh, so I, I, I so much applaud the set of goals you just laid out, but apart from the strengthening the protections for the misuse of Interpol, they're goals and they're not actually specific strategies. Can you elaborate at all on specific ideas and strategies that we're promoting in terms of changes in regulations, changes in enforcement, uh, our strategies of, of targeting and arrest of individuals engaged? What are, is it, but, or is it just that difficult to get from the, from the very important goals to the actual strategies on the street? You need to pay your bill on the WebEx. No, thank you, sir. I mean, I would, I would describe our strategy in, in three parts. One is um, strengthening our whole of government efforts. So this is not simply uh, the job for the Department of State, but we are uh, very closely uh, looped up with uh, Department of Justice, DHS, as well as Treasury and Commerce, who all have um, a role to play in a more effective and strategic US response. We are also uh, working to impose costs for the practice of transnational repression. So, you know, one specific example with that, of that would be the creation last year of the global Khashoggi ban visa restriction policy, which promotes specific accountability for authoritarian regimes engaged in transnational repression. And then the, the other piece I would say is, is the global networking piece to ensure that other governments are aware and attuned to this increasing threats and that they do not allow their own territory to be misused um, for the practice of transnational repression against diaspora or, or exiled um, citizens. Well, thank you very much. I'll just close with saying I, I think this is such an important area in this global competition between freedom-loving nations and autocracies that I'm very concerned about uh, the trends, uh, Freedom House reports that in the last 16 consecutive years, we've seen a decline in global freedom, and that now only 20% of the world lives in a free uh, country. And those autocratic regimes, they are going after dissent across the planet, including right inside our own borders, and we have to find every possible measure to address it. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Corden. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me, let me thank our witnesses. Uh, I want to follow up on Senator Merkley's point because it is alarming. It's not just a one-year trend. It's been a multi-year trend in decline of countries that are, that are uh, free. Uh, Freedom House has said now we're, uh, I think we're in our 16th consecutive year of declining democracies. Uh, we need to look at why that is happening. And there's no simple answer to it, and we need an, uh, a comprehensive strategy, including how we invest our international uh, 
assistance budgets to support democratic institutions around the world. But I want to talk about what we've seen in Ukraine uh, in Mr. Putin, Mr. Putin's ability to wage war, not only against Ukraine, but he's waged war against democratic institutions around the globe, including here in the United States. So how does he do it? He has an asymmetric arsenal that allows him to do things uh, that are horrible, including supporting coups, including misinformation, including uh, use of his military, weaponizing energy, et cetera. But it's, his ability to do that is because of the corrupt finance, the corrupt systems in which he has the ability to use that, the fruits of his corruption in order to advance those causes, not only, again, his immediate neighbors, but really around the world. So we have two pieces of legislation, and I want to get your, your comment on that. One is the Magnitsky sanctions that we've talked about frequently. It's gotten an awful lot of attention around the world today. And I think it's beyond any question about its effectiveness as we see the Russian oligarchs trying to find a place to hide their assets that can't be seized uh, or places that they can visit. Uh, the visa bans and banking bans have really had a, a major impact on the ability to develop the, the, the kleptocracies around the world. We started that here in the United States Congress with the Magnitsky sanctions. Now it's grown through Europe and other countries, Canada. Uh, we have executive orders, but we have a, uh, the Magnitsky global sanctions expire this year. So my question to you, how important is it for Congress to make it clear that the Magnitsky sanctions are here to stay and to reauthorize and expand that law? And then secondly, that bill, by the way, has passed this committee. It's, it's been, it's passed, the Senate has acted on it a couple of times. It just hasn't gotten to the finish line. And the third is the Global Combating Global Corruption Act. These are both bipartisan acts. This is with Senator Young. The other bill I did was with Senator Wicker, which is to have a global index on how well countries are fighting corruption so that we recognize the vulnerability of a country if it's not fighting corruption is very much part of the challenge we have in declining democracies. So my question to you is how important is it for the U.S. leadership in these, both of these areas to make it clear that we'll take action against those that are supporting these corrupt regimes? And secondly, we'll have objective international standards on judging how well countries are fighting corruption that will influence our bilateral relations with those countries. Thank you so much, Senator. And uh, I, I just want to underscore that I believe the Global Magnitsky Act has uh, been an essential tool in our work with international partners uh, to deny corrupt actors. And, and you mentioned uh, the Russian regime uh, is, a, is a just absolutely um, critical example of that, using their ill-gotten gains. So it is a vital accountability tool for us that we will continue uh, to, uh, to use uh, to impose costs on kleptocrats and their authoritarian enablers. Um, as far as the uh, your Global Corruption Act, um, I, I just want to say the department is deeply committed to the bill's anti-corruption goals, and I think you've seen that from this administration with our elevation of anti-corruption as a national security 
uh, priority uh, with the National Security Memorandum from June last year and the strategy that we released last December in tandem with the Summit for Democracy. So, you know, we, as your bill uh, prescribes, we will not hesitate to call upon governments to implement their anti-corruption commitments publicly and privately. We're going to continue to use visa restrictions and, and GLOMAG to apply pressure. And I think we look forward to discussing with, with you and your team some of the specific measures of the bill you know, with respect to um, the tiering element and how we can best strengthen our efforts to push other countries to follow the US example in creating uh, more effective responses uh, to kleptocratic corruption and holding others accountable. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to both of our witnesses. I want to pursue the line of questioning about digital autocracies. Uh, we've seen in Putin's Russia him bringing down an, an iron curtain to keep out truth and information. Uh, in China, we see a great wall uh, to keep out uh, information and truthful information. And we witnessed uh, yesterday, many of us, uh, a very brave Russian journalist uh, who told the truth. Uh, she was an editor for TV One, a state-controlled uh, TV station, who put up a poster saying, don't believe the propaganda. They're lying to you. Uh, that's the kind of bravery we're witnessing for people who are trying to bring, bring the truth. But my question is, today, in terms of our own efforts, and I think this is probably a question for Ms. Godfrey to start with, um, you know, what, what technologies are we using uh, to try to both breach uh, the Iron Curtain when it comes to information and the Great Wall when it comes to information? Uh, we had Radio Free Europe. We still do. Uh, Russians tried to, you know, continue to block that, but we have a lot of new technologies. What, what are we doing right now to try to bring the Russian people the truth? Because the information I've seen to date uh, indicates that a majority of Russians believe Putin's lies. Thank you, sir, for the question. Can I confirm that you can hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you, sir. Um, thank you for the question and for uh, both for calling out the bravery of Russian voices who are standing up and speaking out, um, potentially at great personal cost to themselves, um, as well as for acknowledging the, the very real challenges um, that autocratic governments like Russia and China are imposing to keep their own citizens from accessing information Godfrey, Ms. and Ms. from knowing the Ms. truth. Godfrey, can you hear me? Yeah, no, I, I know the problem. I, I guess my yes, question is, what are we doing to, to counter it? I just have limited time. Thank you. So we are continuing to do uh, extensive media outreach, um, in particular in Russia today. That includes um, to Russian language media like Dojd and Medusa, as well as to U.S. government-supported Russian language media like RFERL and Voice of America. While the Russian government has tried to shut down these outlets and kicked them out, um, Russians seeking access to them online has increased. Um, just this morning, USAGM confirmed to me that their reach in Russia has doubled 
since uh, since the Russian government shut down access to RFE and VOA online. So while the Russian government is trying, they are not yet succeeding in keeping Russian citizens from accessing independent media. And we must continue to support independent media and make sure we are speaking up through that media. We are also engaging on new digital platforms in Russia. Um, we have Telegram and Contactia, which have not yet been set, shut down by the Russian government. These are indigenous Russian language platforms that we're engaging on. We continue to engage through Twitter, Facebook, um, all of the other platforms that we used in Russia, that again, even though the Russian government has tried to shut down those platforms, um, we still see Russian citizens accessing them and we'll continue to use all of those means to continue to communicate with Russians. Thank you. No, I, I think we need to continue to, um, you know, push the technological edge. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the information equivalent of an arms race, and Russia will continue to put up uh, blockades, and we need to use uh, all the latest technology to try to make sure that we get uh, information uh, to the Russian uh, people. You know, the, the ranking member brought up uh, in his opening statement uh, the misinformation that both Russia and China are spreading with respect to uh, biological laboratories in Ukraine. Uh, and that started in some ways at a hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee when Undersecretary Newland answered a question accurately about the fact that uh, we have been working with the Ukrainians uh, to make sure that these biological weapons labs are used for civilian purposes and not for military purposes, not for biological weapon purposes. Um, but as it turns out, a, a lot of the material that both Russia and China have used to make that propaganda claim originated actually on some right-wing, very alt-right uh, U.S. Uh, media. And there was a, a memo that uh, was surfaced uh, by David Korn uh, the Kremlin sent a, a memo to Russian media uh, saying it's, quote, essential to feature Tucker Carlson, uh, who has been spreading uh, this misinformation uh, on his own show. Could you, uh, Ms. Godfrey, respond a little bit to how Russians use that misinformation here in the United States to try to buttress their claims that their propaganda is accurate? I, I do find it extraordinary that at a moment that a, a, a Russian journalist uh, is getting locked up for speaking the truth, uh, we have a Kremlin memo urging their state-controlled TV to push statements from uh, U.S. commentators. Could you just talk to that issue? The information environment uh, is not easily divided up uh, into foreign speakers and domestic speakers. Um, there is a great deal of overlap in that environment. It should be surprising to no one that governments like Russia and China will take remarks from anyone, whether it's Undersecretary Newland or you or Tucker Carlson, and seek to manipulate and exploit those remarks to their own ends, right? This is a tactic that purveyors of disinformation use routinely and regularly. Ms. Godfrey, um, well, I, I know my time is up, but uh, there's a distinction. It's, it's, harder to, it's harder for them to use accurate statements uh, for propaganda, although they will try. But in the case of uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson, he, he, he actually provided the rushing talking point for them. Th thank you, Mr. Chairman. If there's no other member um, seeking, um, I'd just like to thank our first witness um, and thank you for your testimony and invite our second panel uh, of Ann Applebaum and Dr. Daniel Twining uh, to come forward to offer their testimony. Thank you, Madam Undersecretary.
In the interest of time, I'm going to proceed with introductions as our witnesses for the second panel are getting seated. I'd like to welcome Anne Applebaum, an accomplished journalist, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, author, political analyst, current senior fellow at Johns Hopkins, and staff writer for the Atlantic Magazine. Her recent writing and research focus on the rise of global authoritarianism and the threats facing open society and liberal democratic ideals. Throughout her illustrious career, Ms. Applebaum's written extensively on issues of nationalism, corruption, xenophobia, disinformation, politics and history of Central Europe, and Russia's actions on the world stage over the past three decades. Her writing is timely, incisive, and a significant contribution to our deliberations at this critical moment in modern history. Welcome, Ms. Applebaum. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. I'd like to also introduce Dr. Daniel Twining. Dr. Twining is the president of the International Republican Institute, where he leads the Institute's efforts to advance democracy and freedom around the world. Dr. Twining served as counselor to the president, director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, and as the foreign policy advisor to my friend and former colleague, the late U.S. Senator John McCain. He's also been an associate of the National Intelligence Council, taught at Georgetown University, and served as a military instructor with the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome, Dr. Twining. We're also very encouraged to have your timely and important testimony today. Ms. Applebaum? He talked about how Chairman Menendez spoke of how uh, in the 21st century, the idea we have of an autocrat being a single person operating by himself uh, is no longer true. Um, nowadays, autocracies are run not just by one bad guy, but by networks composed of kleptocratic financial structures, security services, and professional propagandists. The members of these networks are connected not only within a given country, but among many countries. Uh, so the corrupt state-controlled companies in Russia uh, do business with the corrupt state-controlled companies in Venezuela and Iran. China sells surveillance technology all over the world to Zimbabwe, to others. Oligarchs from multiple countries use the same accountants and lawyers to hide their money in Europe and here in the United States. Propagandists, whether from communist or nationalist or theocratic autocracies, pound home the same messages about the chaos of democracy and the evil of America, and their goal is to confuse audiences at home and abroad in order to make all of us believe that change is impossible. In my roles as a journalist in Poland, as a historian of Soviet communism, and as a member of the board of the National Endowment for Democracy, I've been writing about our responses to this new challenge for the past decade, um, and they are inadequate. Uh, Western sanctions alone have no impact on autocrats who know they can continue to trade with one another. Accusations from human rights organizations mean nothing to dictators who are protected by surveillance technology and vast personal wealth. Russia invaded Ukraine in part because the Russian president believed he would pay no price. Um, after all, Russian invasions of Georgia, Ukraine and Syria, Russian assassinations carried out in Britain and Germany, Russian disinformation and political funding campaigns designed to impact democratic elections in America, France, and Germany, among many other places, none of this received a strong response either from us or from our democratic allies. Going forward, we need a completely new strategy towards Russia, towards China, and the rest of the autocratic world. So instead of always reacting to the latest outrage, we need to change the rules of the game altogether. 
Instead of imposing sanctions after the fact, punishing oligarchs who are already rich, we must alter our own financial system so that kleptocratic elites cannot use our company laws and our property markets to hide their stolen wealth and so that they can't use that wealth to influence our own political system. Instead of merely responding to the virulent propaganda that comes out of Moscow or Beijing or Caracas, uh, we should de help deliver better information on a much broader scale to those countries in the languages that people speak. Instead of assuming we are protected by old norms on inviolability of borders, we need strategies of deterrence that take into account the real possibility that autocracies will use military force. Um, in my written testimony, I, su I suggest some specific steps, the elimination of secrecy and company ownership and real estate transactions, a more coherent organization of public diplomacy, pulling together our excellent but underfunded foreign language broadcasters, um, pulling together the media monitoring and research now done by the intelligence community, um, the Global Engagement Center at the State Department, and the tools of cultural diplomacy. All of these things should be connected to one another. They should know what one another is doing, and they should work together. With thousands of talented Russians fleeing Moscow, this is also the time to think big. Why not create a Russian language television station that can compete with Putin's propaganda? Why not do the same in Mandarin or in other languages? We also need to put uh, democracy back at the heart of our foreign policy thinking, and we can start by imagining a different future for Ukraine. Uh, if Ukraine emerges from this war with its democracy and sovereignty intact, that victory would provide a transformational boost in confidence, not only to democratic activists in Belarus and Russia, but also to those in Hong Kong and Caracas. By contrast, a defeat would be a terrible blow to all of them. The stakes of this war are already much higher than most in Washington have acknowledged, affecting NATO's credibility, the cohesion of the democratic camp, even Americans' own sense of their place in the world. Um, it's not enough to avoid the worst outcomes. We need to think about achieving real victories in Ukraine and in the other struggles to come. Uh, many thanks to the committee once again for this invitation, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Risch, uh, members of this distinguished committee. It's really a pleasure to be back in the Senate to testify before you on countering authoritarianism, a topic at the heart of our work at IRI to advance democracy worldwide. Foreign authoritarians in the Chinese Communist Party and the Kremlin want to make the world safe for autocracy. Their tools include economic leverage, influence operations, digital disinformation, and the export of repressive technologies. IRI's programming equips countries to put back, push back. We equip Democrats around the world with knowledge and tools to expose and counter foreign malign influence, bolstering democracies against the corrosive effects of this rising tide. The Chinese Communist Party is engaging the rest of the world with the same philosophy it uses to govern its own country. It claims to be promoting respect for every country's individual political path, but it seeks to create a world molded in its authoritarian image. Harsh coercion is only half the story of how the party keeps control at home. The offer the party makes to its elites is actually two-sided. Oppose us and we will crush you, but support us and we can help make you rich. The CCP has now taken this approach global. When offering other countries gold does not work, the CCP offers the sword. Political leaders who stand up to Chinese bullying and aggression find their countries on the receiving end of economic coercion, with China using its economic might to impose political compliance. The party tries to aggressively shape discourse about China, including here at home. 
We see cornerstones of American life, like the NBA, Hollywood, and Wall Street, go out of their way to placate the CCP's warped notions of political correctness, including on the atrocities in Xinjiang. China's coercive efforts to influence other countries also target the Chinese diaspora, attempting to turn them into tools of Beijing's design. But the democratic world has an advantage. No country wants to import China's political Leninist model. And democracies historically have been far more resilient than autocracies. We have found that civil society and democratic activism remain the most effective tools to identify and push back against CCP influence. A free and competitive media landscape is a crucial way democracies can inoculate themselves against Chinese malign influence in the information space. Independent media and investigative journalists are some of the best checks against state-curated propaganda, as well as useful assets in exposing foreign authoritarian corruption. Political parties play a central role in combating Chinese political interference. Political parties in countries like Australia and Lithuania have formed cross-partisan coalitions to push back against PRC economic coercion. Parties shown to be in the pocket of a foreign authoritarian power will not succeed in open democratic competition anywhere. The US really must do more to help friendly democracies protect themselves from malign Chinese influence. A few ideas include supporting collective economic defense. Number one, NATO stance is a bulwark against Russian aggression in the military domain, but there's no institution that provides collective economic security to countries coerced by China for standing up for democratic values. Protecting the free world requires a credible deterrent to Chinese economic aggression. Two, providing technical support to countries negotiating Belt and Road deals. Some countries have signed bad deals with China because they lacked technical expertise to negotiate good ones. The U.S. and our allies can fill this gap, helping nations secure high-quality deals that are transparent, citizen-centric, and non-corrupt. Three, supporting independent journalism. China cultivates journalists around the world to advance pro-CCP narratives effectively removing independent voices from the conversation on China. The U.S. should support independent media to investigate and expose corruption, counter state-sponsored propaganda, bolster the integrity of the information space, and build media literacy to mitigate the impact of authoritarian disinformation. Four, investing in responsive governance. Supporting democracy around the world creates a comparative forward policy advantage for America. In an era of ideologically driven great power competition, Supporting the aspiration to freedom abroad is not only the right thing to do, it produces tangible national security benefits, including preventing fr friendly countries from succumbing to state capture by foreign authoritarians. Polls show Americans support this kind of values-based leadership and believe we should stand with democracies against authoritarian assault. The U.S. should allocate more resources to steal the foundations of global democracy against authoritarian powers' insidious attacks. Just to wrap up, over the past few years, the work of IRI, the National Democratic Institute, the National Endowment for Democracy, and others, through that work, we've developed networks, tools, and resources to bolster democratic resilience to authoritarian overtures. Democracy requires active defense. Political accountability, transparency, innovation, and resilience remain the most effective antidotes to authoritarian aggression. And when democracies stand together, authoritarians take note. It's essential to invest in democracy assistance to help champions of government of the people, by the people, and for the people build institutions strong enough to stand against authoritarian subversion. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you both for your testimony. We'll start a series of uh, questions for five-minute round, uh, five rounds. Uh, Dr. Applebaum, your testimony is, is exactly in line uh, with my sentiments and thinking. It was what I was trying to get 
our previous uh, witnesses to engage in what are we doing. And uh, there are some parts of your testimony that I think deserve to be highlighted, and I want to engage with you on it. You say in it that we have to change the rules of engagement altogether, that we must alter our financial system so that we stop kleptocratic elites from abusing it in the first place, that we must provide accurate and timely information where there is none and deliver it in the languages people speak. And we need a military strategy based in deterrence that takes into account the real possibility the autocracies will use military force. You go on to say, when we talk about transnational kleptocracy, that a whole host of American and European intermediaries make this kind of transactions possible. Lawyers, bankers, accountants, real estate agencies, PR companies. And you say their work is legal. We have made it so. We can just as easily make it illegal. We don't need to tolerate a little bit of corruption when we can simply end the whole system altogether. And finally, uh, you say, just as we once built an international anti-communist alliance, so can we build an international anti-corruption alliance organized around the idea of transparency, transparency, accountability, and fairness. And we need to provide real, long-lasting competition for Russian state-run cable and satellite television that most of the people in these regions ultimately follow. So uh, that, is, that is what I was trying to drive with our previous panel. Could you elaborate on some of those things? How would we go about, in your mind, doing that? Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, um, for those comments. Um, I think there, let me, let me say two things. One is that I think in this new atmosphere, we need to rethink a little bit how we communicate. Um, this is a real emergency. And much as we assembled the Department of Homeland Security out of disparate agencies after 9-11, I think we now need a much more carefully targeted effort that will pull together some of the disparate parts of the US government that think about public diplomacy, um, but don't necessarily act together. Um, we have the very talented but underfunded Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, um, Radio Free Asia, and the others. Um, they're now at the US Agency for Global Media. We have the Global Engagement Center currently at the State Department. Um, the Open Source Center, which is a, a, you know, a large media monitoring and translation service, which is now in the intelligence community, where its work is hard to access. Um, it would help a lot to put these together. And I don't, I don't mean a major um, departmental reorganization, but if they're thinking together, if they're acting together, if they have using the same um, research, um, I think they'll be, they'll be more um, effective. Um, one of the things that we've learned about disinformation in the last several years is that fact-checking and counter-disinformation are never as good as offering an alternate narrative, um, a better story. Um, you know, reaching Russians with uh, a Russian television station run by Russians. Uh, we have you know, t hundreds, if not thousands, of Russians have just escaped Moscow um, in order to, and you know, if we can pull them together and have them do the reporting that will then beamed, be, be beamed back into the country, um, we will be, uh, we will be much better off. Um, so I would say that's the first piece of it. The second piece of it is understanding that kleptocracy is not something that happens on you know, Caribbean islands far away. Um, it happens here in American states, in South Dakota, uh, in Delaware. Um, and changing our own rules will be an extremely good start to pushing back on it. 
making, uh, there's no reason why Americans need to have own companies anonymously or own property anonymously or why anybody else should be able to do that in America either. Um, I nor these are, of course, not normally questions for the Senate, uh, for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, but I, I think the, um, the international financial markets are now you know, part of foreign policy in a way that they didn't used to be. So I, I hope that we will consider making changes at home and getting our allies to do the same. Um, that's, that's the best way to, to you know, not just sanction people, but prevent them from getting wealthy illegally in the first place. And finally, both to you and Mr. Twining, it seems to me that we dramatically underfund uh, these initiatives uh, when, in fact, they would be as powerful and in some cases, I believe, more powerful than what we do in the Department of Defense. Because if we succeed at this, then we are less likely to find ourselves in the need of conflict. Is that a fair statement? And if not, why not? Uh, Mr. Chairman, could I just point out that the Chinese and the Russians both spend an inordinate amount of money to subvert and weaken and attack democracy all over the world, that it's central to their grand strategy as authoritarian great powers. And so we should take the fact that they care about this uh, dead seriously in our own country. I wouldn't suggest taking out of the defense budget, but I would suggest, for instance, that the reason that Ukrainians are fighting so valiantly is because they have a real democracy to defend, that they're fighting for their freedom, they're not fighting for a leader, yeah. and that investing in democratic resilience is a sure source of security. It also helps produce great allies for the United States. Yeah. And I wasn't suggesting taking it out of the defense department. What I was saying is that it is as powerful as some of what we do in the defense department and, uh, in my mind, more preventative uh, that we don't end up sending America's sons and daughters abroad. Senator Risch. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Applebaum, I, I think that those remarks you made in reminding us all that an autocracy isn't one person, that it's a person sitting on top of a pyramid of... Uh, uh, people who are just as bad as the autocrat themselves and uh, in some respects even worse. And I, I think that's appropriate that we think about it like that, and I think it's appropriate that we uh, act uh, uh, towards that, uh, the, the whole system and not just one individual. So I, I appreciate that. Um, I'm, I was uh, really uh, enjoyed hearing your uh, comments about thinking bigger when it comes to promoting democracy. Here's a problem I have with it, and, and uh, uh, maybe you can give us some suggestions how we get past this, but um, I, I want to talk about Voice of America. You know, Voice of America puts out some good stuff. I've, I've uh, done some stuff for them, and I imagine everybody on this committee has probably done some things for them. Uh, uh, but uh, some of the other stuff I've heard them put out... Uh, is uh, just stunningly an attack on America itself. And uh, I, I've heard programs where they use uh, some of the difficulties we have, and we have difficulties in America, whether you're talking about race relations, whether you're talking about uh, income equity and those kinds of things that, that people uh, don't like. Uh, but I've, I've heard you know, some of those things Voice of America puts out, and I've complained about it, and I'm told to mind my own business that... Uh, that uh, they have editorial freedom and they can put out whatever they want to put out, which I guess is true. Um, but my gosh, the stuff I heard, I, I wouldn't want. I, I, I was dismayed that U.S. taxpayer money 
uh, was using this to put, if I was somebody sitting somewhere and listening to this, say, boy, that's an awful place, this America place. What, you know, we, we've certainly got things better here under an autocracy than they have under a democracy. And uh, so what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I really like the idea about having a TV in addition to radio. Uh, we've all been around the world and turned on the TV. And, and uh, in Af when you turn on in any major African city, you turn on the TV and you'll find a Chinese program that, that's uh, done in Chinese and with, uh, uh, with translations for the people to watch. So I'm intrigued by that. But uh, because of our... Uh, uh, because of our freedoms and, and because of the uh, disdain some Americans have for their own country because of some uh, detail that they don't particularly like, how do you get around that? You, you've got some thoughts on that? Uh, thank you so much for that uh, question, Senator. Um, I mean, I think we could have asked that question of almost any journalism, um, who controls it, how it should be, how it should be shaped. Um, I do think that the one difference between American funding program and, say, Russian state funding program is precisely the fact that it's not controlled by this body or any other. It's not controlled directly by the U.S. government. Um, and that may give it some credibility, um, you know, even though you might not like everything that it says or I might not like everything that it says. Um, its credibility comes from the sense of independence it has and the more independence it, it is given, um, the better an advertisement for our political system and for our, um, you know, and for our, our media is. Um, that doesn't mean that every journalist is perfect and every report is ideal. Um, but I think the aim with U.S. broadcasting should always be to, to show at least a range of ideas. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's a, a legitimate argument, and, uh, and you make that well. But I'm telling you, the stuff I heard was just poisonous. I mean, it, it wasn't... It was stuff that I, I was uh, embarrassed and ashamed that we were using taxpayers' money to tell the rest of the world about what an awful place America was. And um, I, I appreciate that uh, uh, independence, uh, editorial independence is uh, important, but uh, boy, I tell you, we were sure going in the wrong direction, and I think we were doing, doing more damage than we were uh, good uh, by putting that out. So. Anyway, I, I think that's a problem, but I, I agree with you. I mean, our, our adversaries are spending a tremendous amount of money uh, on these, as, as we all see when we turn on the TV, whether you're in Europe or, or in Africa or anywhere else. So um, uh, thanks, uh, th thanks for those uh, thoughts. Ms. Twining, do you have any thoughts in that regard? Sir, just that uh, our way of life is very attractive and compelling, and I think we've spent a few years convincing ourselves that it's not. It's very compelling to people all over the world. The leaders of Russia and China have put their people in big propaganda bubbles, and they want to convince them that somehow we're decadent, we're internally divided, America's violent, all of these caricatures. And so anything we can do to help just tell the truth about the great country that we live in uh, we shouldn't forget that people around the world, including across Russia and China, actually would love to live in the United States if they could. So information should be working for us, not for our competitors. And I really appreciate the focus of this hearing uh, because we have a lot of work to do to get the real story in, not just about ourselves, uh, but including about the corruption and just extraordinary totalitarian abuses uh, that are happening in, in Russia and China. Yeah, that's, that's a good thought. And I... 
I think if you could get enough of that in people's hands, uh, they would have a clear understanding of what a, what a wonderful country this is. I, I was in China right after China opened up, and uh, there were actually a group of people watching a, a U.S. Uh, TV station off the satellite. And I, I said to the guide, I said, what, you know, what's going on here? And he said, oh, they love American TV, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know, I can't help but think that somebody over there is going to have a problem with this because they were watching American TV with advertising. They were advertising Cadillacs and Coca-Cola and new homes and everything else. And I said, what, what do people think about that? And he says, oh, the government tells them that's all, that, that's all pro American propaganda. That's not really the way it is over here. So I suspect that the more of that they got out, probably the better off we'd be. My time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. Uh, Ms. Applebaum, I want to start with your testimony. You talked about a couple of things we should do, and one of the things you talked about was public diplomacy, education, cultural, having that be strong. Um, since I'm not shy about criticizing Republican colleagues for slowing down the confirmation of That's Biden true. nominees, here's one where I got to ask the Biden administration what's up. The Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, I do not believe the administration has sent us a nominee. This is a position that is a top 10 position at the State Department. It's been a position since 1999, and yet in the entire history of this position, it's only had a confirmed undersecretary about 35% of the time. It was, it was about 37% of the time during President Bush's eight years. It was, it was, uh, um, it, it was vacant 37% of the time during the Bush administration. It was vacant 20% of the time during the Obama administration. It was vacant 90% of the time during the Trump administration. This is a top 10 position in the State Department. And if we are gonna try to compete in this information uh, and public diplomacy, we've gotta have people in place. What kind of a message does it send when the US has a position like this and just decides both in either an administration or Congress not to bother to confirm anyone? Senator, thank you so much for that question. I was reading some of that research myself um, a couple of days ago. I think the truth is that we have underestimated the role and the need for public diplomacy, and I think it's a bipartisan problem. Um, it's, it's somehow been a less prestigious part of our foreign policy, um, and this is why I'm suggesting pulling together some of the public diplomacy functions that exist actually spread across the U.S. government. Um, uh, you know, it, it, you, would, you would be best positioned to decide whether it should be an agency or part of some other department. Um, but, be, but focusing them, bringing them together, having them jointly discuss what are the values that we're trying to get across, how are we going to do it, um, what do we understand about foreign audiences? Have we really looked at who's on the Russian internet? Have we thought about how to reach them? Um, you know, of course we can reach Russian liberals, but we might not be able to reach Russian Putinists, but there's a lot of people in the middle and there might be ways of reaching them that we haven't thought about yet. Um, doing some of that research, having some of that knowledge, and then having it spread through different parts of the, of the government, different people who are working on this problem from different angles, I think could be incredibly valuable. Um, Dr. Troning, I want to direct a, a different question to you. You could say something about this in, in answering it if you want, but I really appreciate your answer, Ms. Applebaum, and I just encourage the administration, we're 14 months into the administration, send us a good nominee for this position. I think the acting is doing a good job. I don't have a dog in the hunt in terms of who should be the nominee, but, but why have it uh, be a position that is downgraded by not sending us uh, someone to confirm. Um, the Summit for Democracy that happened in December, I want to ask each of you, and maybe beginning with Dr. Twining, about the prospects for this. 
I, I think it was sort of, you know, because it was virtual, it probably wasn't all it could be. It was a first step. I will say the administration did zero outreach to the senators. I surveyed my Senate colleagues to see, is anybody reaching out and saying, uh, hey, senators, what should we emphasize? What priorities should we put? And the answer that I got back, at least from my Democratic colleagues, was no. So I do think there's an opportunity to involve uh, the Article I branch in matters like this and give it a higher level of importance. But what might you hope, since there's going to be a hopefully an in-person summit at the end of this calendar year, what might you each hope uh, we could accomplish through that uh, venue? Thanks, Senator, and thanks for your leadership on the NED board. We really appreciate it. Uh, my brief answer would be uh, we need to focus on what unites us, not what divides us as free and open societies. Uh, the Biden administration asked countries to each make a set of domestic commitments on democratic reform and renewal. That's all well and good. At the end of the day, we just have a lot more in common with free and open societies, and we should understand that our adversaries are out there. They're not internally in our own societies, that we live in a free and open order uh, that is upheld by uh, the United States and our democratic friends and allies, and that this is a group of countries that has the most stake in defending and supporting that order. That includes taking on these very difficult issues we've been discussing around digital authoritarianism, around uh, all sorts of uh, difficulties for democracy. But fundamentally, the authoritarians have had momentum for the past decade or so, and it's bizarre because there's never been higher levels of political participation. There's this enormous bottom-up energy in the world. Before COVID in 2019, there were more street protests than any time since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. So there's this enormous energy that's welling up, yet there is this top-down clampdown. And we need to join, essentially, the street and those small-D democratic actors creating that democratic momentum. Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd, I'd just like to note uh, that I deeply respect uh, both of the panelists today. I had the occasion to, to work with uh, Daniel Twinning at, at IRI and, and uh, have watched him over the years, an extraordinary leader of that organization and an extraordinary mind. And Anne Applebaum, I have enjoyed reading her books and, uh, and her articles, uh, articles at Atlantic, uh, but uh, her book, Twilight of Democracy, is one which is obviously... Uh, uh, captivated many of us that that uh, follow the great battle that's going on between authoritarianism and uh, and freedom. I would note, uh, Senator Kane, um, as you know, I spent uh, most of my career in the private sector, and uh, and I look at how the federal government is organized and managed, and I see nothing like it in any corporation anywhere in the world. Any entity that was trying to accomplish a significant purpose would be organized very differently than our government. We have agency after agency, department after department. Who's the chief operating officer? Who are the group vice presidents? The, the, we are not organized to take on something as important as communicating who we are and communicating the power of freedom. And, uh, and we have, uh, as uh, Ms. Applebaum has pointed out, uh, people throughout government doing a little bit of a communication, but we have not put that together. Uh, even the Russians have a, a, a department of propaganda, as I understand it. Why we don't have a single entity responsible for communicating our message throughout the world, I don't quite know. Um, Ms. Applebaum, you, you've spoken uh, about the need to get uh, public information to the people in, in Russia, for instance. Is there a way of doing that? I don't. Maybe you, you don't know the answer to that, but I'm I, I wonder even today, how much are they hearing about what's really happening in Ukraine? Uh, I, I, the idea that we still have something called Voice of America and Radio Free Europe, I sort of, 
I, I scratch my head. Does anyone listen to the radio anymore? Uh, I mean, I, do we not communicate in the in the methods that the Russians, for instance, are using, uh, and and more effectively? And and what are they hearing? So, Senator Romney, thank you so much for those comments and for that for that question. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend that Russians are still getting the same amount of information that they got even three weeks ago. Um, the Russian internet is being shut down. Um, Facebook and, and Twitter are both gone. Um, the Instagram is gone. Um, you know, the, 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 the digital space inside Russia is closing. Um, I think that this means that what we, we need to do, um, and this is a, and I know that the, some of the radios um, and, and others are beginning to think about this, is shift from an era of kind of bullhorn digital broadcasting where we just put stuff out to a new era of digital samizdat. So mobilizing informed citizens, contacting people either in the diaspora or inside the country who we know are able to get messages on or who are influencers or who can pass on information um, and, 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 and target them. Um, what we need to do is much more careful targeting of who our information goes to. And, and as I said in one of my previous answers, put much more careful thought into who are the audiences? What are the audiences hearing? What media are they actually getting? And how can we how can we get into that? Um, I don't think that we know the answer right now because I don't think we've thought that way in a long time. Um, but I do think the answers are knowable and it could be done. Daniel, uh, do you have a sense of uh, of what Russians are hearing today? Uh, you have colleagues that are working in Russia. Uh, are, are they giving you a sense of, of what the Russian people are hearing? I, I saw a brave... Uh, employee or broadcaster who actually jumped into a live broadcast with a sign saying there's a war we're committing in Ukraine, you know, we need to protest. But this is obviously the exception. How much is getting through? Thanks, Senator. Thanks for all your support for IRI and the cause. Um, not enough is getting through. Uh, most Russians, uh, it sounds like, anecdotally support Putin's war because they believe Kremlin propaganda that Ukraine conducted aggression against Russia and NATO conducted aggression against Russia. So we have a fundamental problem. Russians also don't see, uh, the, the Kremlin has been very sharp in censoring images you know, of the battlefield, of wounded Russian, captured Russian soldiers, that sort of thing. So in addition to telling America's story in a country like Russia, really, uh, we should be doing a better job of getting information into Russia, showing what Russians are doing to their Slavic brothers in Ukraine, using uh, Chechen uh, terrorists is probably the best word to call that, uh, literally recruiting foreign fighters from Syria and countries in the Middle East to go and kill Ukrainians. Russians don't know that these things are going on. Uh, we just have so much work to do, and I think if Russians understood the truth, they would see very clearly that this war is a big mistake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both. Um, one last question. We've talked about the authoritarianism. We've talked about the need for a more comprehensive and cohesive strategy. But we also see uh, countries, democracies being harmed from corrosive forces within, uh, unscrupulous leaders who use the democratic process to rise to power and then uh, seek to basically subvert it uh, at the end of the day in order to stay in power. And I think of places like Brazil and Hungary as examples uh, of that. What can we do or should we do uh, as it relates to uh, working against the hollowing out of democracies? Uh, 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 thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's an excellent question. 
Um, in fact, most democracies nowadays fail not because of a coup d'etat or some um, young colonel who bear breaks into the presidential palace, but precisely because uh, uh, somebody who's won power by democratic means then seeks to undermine the institutions. Um, I, I think the United States can make a big difference um, in, in, in fighting this, you know, this phenomenon, which, as you say, is now visible all over the world. Um, firstly, by talking about it and speaking about it, making it a central part of our diplomacy. Um, also by, to the degree that we can, living it ourselves, um, making sure that we talk about our own democratic institutions and making sure that they are strong. Um, people do watch what we do. The United States um, is an example around the world. Um, and, and making it clear to our foreign partners that we care about this, that it matters to us, that, that, you know, that we have, we're not just interested in trade, we're not just interested in questions of hard power, but that these aspects of life also make a difference to us and become part of our diplomacy. Dr. Twining. It's a great question, uh, Chairman. Part yeah, of We only ask great questions here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, As part of, I think, the critique <laughs> is that with respect to some of our allies that you mentioned, is that the degradation of democracy in those countries has become a vector for malign foreign authoritarian influence. In other words, the degradation of democracy in allied countries actually undermines the core security component of our alliances with those countries. So uh, we need to, as Anne suggests, make democracy more central to our approach to alliances, but we also really have to invest in countervailing institutions. Uh, most what, what we have seen over the past decade play out in many countries, including allied countries, is leaders take over in free and fair elections and then systematically dismantle countervailing institutions, parliaments that could check and balance their power, free and open media, independent courts, uh, civil society. So investing in those countervailing institutions, I mean, frankly, I'm not saying this because we're sitting in the U.S. Senate. I don't think there's a whole lot more effective in checking executive power than a very strong parliament that can conduct effective oversight. So we do a lot of that work around the world. Uh, young people, uh, particularly young people, are often disenchanted with, quote, democracy, not because they want an authoritarian solution, but because they see elections produce leaders who then do this systematic hollowing out and then engage in corruption, uh, use public funds for their private ends, et cetera. So uh, some of these activities, frankly, have given democracy a bad name. But we look at you know, Afrobarometer polling, for instance, in Africa, and I'll close with this. There is stronger support among people in Africa for democracy and open government than ever. It's just that the, the, they, they are not getting supplied with that open and effective government. But the demand is stronger than ever, and we should meet it. No. Well, thank you both for some incisive testimony. I, uh, this is one of my passions, and um, I intend to use your testimony as a, as a foundation for a legislative initiative in this regard. Um, uh, and we look forward to being able to call upon both of you in the future, uh, if you're so willing. Um, with the thanks of the committee uh, for your uh, participation, uh, the record will remain open to the close of business tomorrow, and this hearing is adjourned.